Good morning. It's good to see everyone today on this rainy but wonderful <coughs> June morning. And so today we are going back to the Old Testament and we just finished our study of <coughs> Hebrews, which uh, was, I think, great, wonderful, amazing. Uh, and maybe it's worth pointing out that I learn as much every time we do this as you do not only through my own study personally, but also through the class interaction. And so just as a reminder today, today is your day as much as mine. Um, I always say I'm gonna try not to lecture and then I always lecture the entire time. So today I'm gonna lecture the entire time. And by making that statement, hopefully that means the opposite. So <clears throat> what we're gonna do today is go through, as we always do when we introduce a new book uh, for this class, is I spend some time kind of setting the stage, introducing the book, its place in history, its place in the world today, because that's important as well. We'll go through some of the history, we'll go through the people and the cultural changes that were happening, because like I say, this very important in this class, there's, there's really three things that we need to ask every time we crack open the good book. And those three questions that we always ask are what? <clears throat> who, wrote it? who wrote it? And when we say who wrote it, we're actually asking what specifically or generally? Yeah, author and their background. their background. Yep, that's exactly it. Their culture. <coughs> Who they were writing to? Who they're writing to? Excellent. Who is the audience? <coughs> and the who is the audience? Question. Hey, brother, can you get that? Thanks. <laughs> is exactly the same answer. What kind of people is the author writing to in what social context, what cultural context, maybe you're already asleep because I'm saying those words, but that's super important, why? Because the, uh, the authors who wrote scripture in the past were not just bored and had nothing to do on a Sunday, so they grabbed a few sheets of papyrus and started writing. There's usually some very significant issues the society that the author was part of was facing and thus wrote the scripture, which in the beginning was not necessarily ever intended to be part of, quote, the Bible. It was simply um, the, the author writing and saying verbally some very important things to the people around him in the past in order to uh, convey knowledge. And so the third most important question we ask is what? Why? Why? Why was it written? These three questions will help you as a student of the Word of God to understand and get much more out of it than if you were just kind of cracking open Psalms. And again, I, you know, I say this, but it's, it's, it's okay too. Cracking open Psalms and reading Psalm 23 in the morning and saying, okay, I'm good. Um, that's okay, and that does provide some value. But if you want to understand much more about the Bible and make it so it's not an insurmountable object to understand, these three questions as you ask them will help you on your journey. <clears throat> what is Malachi? Where is Malachi? What is Malachi? I've never heard of that before, Brian. That doesn't sound like Matthew or Revelation. Well, let's take a big step back. Today we're talking about what a Christian calls the Old Testament. And of course, when I say a Christian says the Old Testament, for a Hebrew, it is called what? The Bible, the Hebrew Bible, which today has been translated into over a hundred languages. Um, our, our translation will be in English. Um, <clears throat> the Old Testament spans probably at least, if you think of the history of the Old Testament, is about 15, 1600 years of actual history. It's actually more than that. Um, <clears throat> it's probably writing that has been, um, you know, stories of God, um, sayings of God, songs that were written to worship God started to be written down sometime around, let's say, 1450 BC and continued to what we think is the last writing of what we call the Old Testament period, Malachi, which is probably written somewhere around 430 BC. First, I always assume, maybe wrongly, that we understand what I mean when I say BC. It's important that I make this very clear. Um, we live in the year 2021, right? 2021 AD, Anno Domini, which is the year of our Lord, right? It's still a Christian calendar. <clears throat> As you progress through time, next year will be what year? 2022. Play along, yes, 2022. <laughs> the year after that is 2023. As you age in our present calendar, the numbers go up. 
okay? It's really important to realize that when we count backwards 2,000 years to the year 1 AD, there is no zero. We, we flip over, we keep going back in time. Pretend you're Marty McFly in your DeLorean and you're going further back in time. Once you hit 1 AD, the next year you will hit back is what? 1 BC. Yes, 1 BC. There is no zero, you skip over it. And then you keep going further back in time. Now this is where maybe people sometimes get a little screwed up in their head and I know it's hard to understand this. The further back in time you get after BC, the bigger the numbers get again. So what, what is going further back in time after 1 BC? What is the year earlier than that? 2, two BC, then 3 BC, then 4 BC. So the reverse, and I'm gonna start writing my arrow here for timeline so you understand how this works. Mm -hmm. 586 BC is 2,587 years ago, give or take, right? A person born in 586 BC ages as the years decrease, okay? So a baby in 586 BC could be dead, an old man and dead by 515 BC. So just, I know it sounds weird to say that out loud and maybe you already know that and I assume you know that, but it's important to realize we're gonna be talking about BC in this class for Malachi for the next couple of weeks and it's important to realize the flow of time. So as we age, the numbers actually get lower. That's what I'm trying to say here. <clears throat> Is that okay. because they didn't start keeping track? So, I mean, because back then they're like, oh, it's, you know, it's 584, you're, you're older now. It's a great question. You're like, you're like the softball plant I put into the, uh, the audience. Uh, yeah, very good question, Ken. Um, no. Uh, in fact, um, throughout history, all cultures had ways of keeping record of time. And as um, cultures developed, especially after the Bronze Age, so the Bronze Age would have ended um, right around 1000 BC, certainly during the age of the Iron Age, when all of the great cultures of the world were really getting going, the great empires, um, the, the Greek Empire, Mycenaean uh, was dead, but the, the classic Greece, um, the Assyrians, Babylonians, and Persians, they all had their own ways of keeping time. The problem was they were all different. Some cultures did have absolute chronologies like years counted forward. Um, the Jews certainly did. And so um, this year for a Jew would be something like 4,000 or 5,000, right? But every culture had a different way of keeping record of time. Because of that, because depending on if you were to go 50 miles to the east and suddenly their calendar is 27,000 and your calendar was 300, there was a different way to do it. So if you notice in the New Testament especially, the authors, because the AD system was not invented yet obviously, because there was no Christ yet, um, or it just happened, what authors tend to do was reference the period they're in by what was going on in the world at the time. So instead of getting an absolute chronology, and this is really important because, as you'll notice, when you read the Old and New Testaments, it never says, this is the year 586 BC, because that didn't exist. What they would say is, this was the year when Quirinius was governor of Syria, in which Augustus was the uh, uh, Caesar of the whole empire, in which uh, Festus was governor of, uh, of, of Judea, um, Pontius Pilate was governor in Jerusalem, and so on and so forth. You see what I'm saying, right? Dates were given by the current events of the, the big important people that were happening at the time. So, and this is, this is a great lesson for this class, which I wasn't intending to talk, but it's good you know this. In order for us now, 2,000 some years later to reconstruct, what we have to do is go back in history and take those pieces when they're mentioned and try and line them all up. Well, Luke was excellent excellent in trying to, to be very clear about the period in which he was writing. And so we can take what Luke says about who was governor of this and who was Caesar of that and who was in charge of this and even natural disasters. Sometimes they would talk about um, solar eclipses, earthquakes, um, tsunamis, volcanic eruptions. We can take those pieces and we can line them up. So when two authors talk about the same people in office at the same time, we can then anchor both of those authors and what one author was writing about and the other author was writing about, you can see, we can start to put them together like a jigsaw puzzle. The dates we have in this class, I would say are fairly secure until we get to 586, 
The further back in history you go, the less secure we are. That's just the truth. I know you all have <laughs> fancy, probably Protestant Bibles with these chronologies that give very exact dates for when Noah's flood happened. I know that you have very exact dates for when Abraham received his two covenants. I know you have chronologies that say the exact date that Adam was kicked out of Eden. Those are probably crap. Just please bear with me here. They're probably close. They're probably close. They're in the ballpark. The further back you go, it is much harder for us to know the exact time and day that things happen. The only way we can actually know the exact time and day is actually because of astrological phenomenon. We can predict back exactly when solar and lunar eclipses happen. Because of that, if a author references a solar eclipse in the past, we can actually know the exact day and hour that that happened in the past. But that is really the only way that we can kind of reference any of our chronologies. Any other chronology is kind of subjective. So when I say, and in the, again, this chronology we're going to talk about today, the, the, the you know, 6th to 5th centuries BC, we're pretty close because there's so many records of what happened during that period that were fairly secure. But it's not that secure. In fact, when I say that 586 was the year that Jerusalem was destroyed by the Babylonians, it turns out we might be off by six months. So it might actually be 587. Why? This could be 587, and this could be 537, <coughs> give or take. <clears throat> Why? Because different cultures had different calendars that started a new year on a different date. And even the Hebrew calendar does this too. There were two different new years. There was the new year of the astrological new year, or I'm sorry, astronomical new year, which starts later in the year. And then there's the agricultural new year, which starts earlier in the year. So sometimes it's not entirely clear which actual year some of these happen. So sometimes if you look in your chronologies, you'll see slash marks with two years that are right by each other. This is why. This is why, okay? So, great question. <clears throat> um, again, the point here is not so much that you memorize and know the exact dates, but you know them relatively speaking. What happened in what order? That's what I want you to know today. Okay. What is the period in which we're talking? So, this is BC. Imagine we're in 2021 AD, so we gotta go way, right? Probably on this wall over here, probably at the television. Work your way all the way back through the Middle Ages, mm -hmm. through um, the Byzantine period, through Rome, through, through Jesus. And we keep going back. And now we're way back. Go all the way back. Before 586 BC, and again, that would be a bigger number, Israel was its own country, had its own king. In fact, there was what we call the divided monarchy. There was Judea, or Judah, Actually, it was called Judah at the period. And here's my map. You get a map today, too. Here's what's the modern-day country of Israel. We'll call it Palestine because it's not always been called Israel. Um, you could also call it the Levant because that's more of a geographical term. Palestine is more of a physical term. But we would have the nation of Israel, which around 900 B.C. split into a northern kingdom called Israel, which is confusing, and a southern kingdom called Judah. They persisted as two separate kingdoms ruled by their own kings. They had their own standing army. They minted and printed their own money. They conducted their own economies and they had foreign relations with other countries. That all lasted until about 722 for the Northern Kingdom when they were obliterated by um, Assyria. And until 586 when Judah which includes the capital city of Jerusalem, was obliterated by Babylon. In 586, this is a super important date to remember, Jerusalem was burned to the ground and the temple, the first temple, which we call Solomon's temple, was completely destroyed, okay? That is a watershed moment in the history of Judeo-Christianity because it sets the stage for everything that was going to come after that. The rebuilding, temporarily of the Jewish nation and the supplanting of the Jewish law and, and nation and priestly system and kingdom by the rule of Jesus Christ as the Messiah in 
the first century AD. What happened to the people of Judah after 586? Well, many of them were killed. So I think you have to, this is all really important I'm about to tell you. Their society was destroyed by Babylon. Their city was obliterated. Remember, how many scriptures were written before 586 that talked about the glory of Jerusalem, the glory of the promised land? Remember, we talked about our covenants a couple weeks ago. God said, I will establish with you, Abraham, a covenant of land and a covenant of a different one, a covenant of offspring in which the people of your descendants will populate a land that I'm giving you, a promised land. That's great, except in 586, all of that blew up. All of that blew up. And now you have millions of Jews who are now wrestling with the fact that the, pro the covenant promises were not kept and fulfilled. And they weren't, they weren't kept and fulfilled because why? Why were they not kept and fulfilled? Because they didn't follow their end of the bargain. This was a mutual um, <clears throat> agreement. Two kinds of covenants. One is a, is a grant. It is a royal grant that doesn't matter what you do, Laura. I, as the, um, the initiator of the covenant, promise something to you no matter what. Okay. But the covenant of land was something more different than that. It was, it was something, uh, especially the law, and we'll talk about the law here in a minute. Those were things that were conditional. Conditional promises that said, you have, Laura, a, um, a uh, behavior to uphold if we are to keep this covenant going. And the Jews broke that covenant through their idolatry, through their selfishness, through their rejection of God, through their pagan polytheistic worship. Remember, before 586, Israel was a polytheistic culture. I know that's weird to hear, but they worshiped many different gods, not just Yahweh, Yehovah or Jehovah, Father God that we call God the Father today. They worshiped Baal. They worshiped Asherah. They worshiped different forms of Asherah called Astarte. Uh, they, they worshiped moon gods and sun gods and water gods. And all the time, God the real God saying, you got to get your act together, folks, because there's only one God of the universe. And every time you go and you worship Baal, the thunder God, you really upset me. You really upset me. And a lot of the writing of the Old Testament, if you were to open Ezekiel or Isaiah or Jeremiah or Haggai or one of a number of other prophets, they're very clear. you got to change your ways because you're not honoring me, Jehovah, with your worship you're not being monotheistic. So God said, I'm going to tell you, if you don't change your ways, I'm going to destroy your nation. What happened? They didn't change their ways, and he destroyed their nation. Is this when Daniel, so 586, when they, Babylonian, they exiled to Babylon, yes. that's when Daniel was. Yes. So what about... Hmm? Oh my goodness, Susie. Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. He was a contemporary, correct? Yes. So was he for the contemporary for the Northern Kingdom? No, he was. He was definitely. So, so we have Jeremiah, we have Daniel, um, we have Ezekiel, which is a little bit of a different generation. But all of those pro we have Isaiah is way back here. So the especially these three prophets are contemporary with the destruction of Jerusalem. That's a great okay. point. Yeah. Okay. I'm just trying to. Yeah. So this time at 586, the Northern Kingdoms of been in uh, um, Babylonia. It's gone. gone. It's actually gone, and I they were deported. Uh, yeah. So they're okay. They're gone, and in fact, the Sumerians, that we'll call the Samaria, that was the northern kingdom. In fact, Assyria, again, uh, it's good for context here, and we'll get to the text in a minute. Um, the Assyrians, like the Babylonians, felt that when they went to take over a country, remember, in antiquity, it was all about your army has to take over another country for you to survive. It was either you take them over or they take you over. It was a very warlike period in human history. The Assyrian philosophy was we come in, we smash you, but then we deport you. Why? Because it breaks you as a people. It breaks you as a people because then you can't fight back. So what they did was they took the Israelites who were in the northern kingdom, they deported them back to Assyria, and they disappear from history. 
largely. They were integrated into Assyrian culture, and the land here was repopulated with Assyrians. So there's a swap that happens, right? So now you have all of these pagan Assyrians who are resettled in the Northern Kingdom with a remnant of the Jewish beliefs that persist. And so there are still a few thousand people that cling to what was the Northern <coughs> Kingdom's religious beliefs, which were very similar to the Bible we have, okay? But they were called Samarians or Samarit uh, Samaritans. <coughs> But they largely disappear from history. The difference is when Babylon deported the Jews to, Bab to Babylonia, Babylon didn't live very long until Babylon was crushed by an even stronger empire called the Persian Empire. That happened in 530, around 540. So that's why when Jesus kept traipsing back and forth through Samaria, all the Jews were like, these are, these are rotten people, bad That's people. exactly it. These are the enemy. Why? Because they have pagan beliefs. They have twisted Jewish beliefs. They are the enemy. That's exactly right. Okay. Now, here's the important part. When Persia took over, they had a much more enlightened philosophy of they didn't want, first of all, they didn't tend to deport people away from their conquered territories. They let you live there. And the second important thing is, they didn't try to change your culture to theirs. The Assyrians and Babylonians would force you to believe in their gods. Marduk, remember this? The whole thing about the fiery furnace and, and Nebuchadnezzar. He wanted you to bow down to him and his gods and forget about your gods. Well, the Persians were completely the opposite. They knew that that kind of thing causes so much problem. They knew that if, look, all we're going to do is take over your government. We're not going to smash your cities. They did smash cities, but not all the time. They took over your government. You get to continue living your life. You get to continue worshiping your own gods. Believe whatever you want. Worship whatever you want. Just make sure you don't fight back and pay your taxes. <laughs> you do that and we're square. Who does that sound like today? Okay. You do that and we're all square. The Persian Cyrus um, uh, of, of Persia decides <laughs> he is going to let the Jews go back home. There were still enough Jews who were still Jewish enough in Babylon that he goes, I'm gonna let you go home to your homeland if you want to. And so this is a great, another watershed in Jewish history. In 538, Cyrus signs a decree that says you can go home, okay? Now, think about this for a minute. What you have is probably hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of Jews displaced from their home, living in Babylon. So this is essentially the modern day city of, Iraq, of Baghdad, Iraq. Okay, this is the region in which these people are living, Baghdad, Iraq. Okay, suddenly a Persian king who lives in Susa, which is which is modern day Iran, says you can go home. Well, guess what? It's been two generations. A lot of them have started to integrate into Persian society. Today, there are Persian Jews, still, because the Persians integrated. Those, the, you know, the Jews stayed. They didn't want to go home. How many of you want to get up and leave now? Let's say your great-grandfather came from Sweden, Switzerland, France, England, whatever. Now all of a sudden, you know, the king, president says, okay, you can go back to your homeland. Okay, well, how many of you are going to do that? <laughs> how many of you are going to go, oh, okay, great, we can go home, but we won't have jobs. The trek is very arduous. I mean, look, you're not going to get on the Concorde and fly home to Jerusalem, folks. You're going to get your donkey saddled. If you have a donkey, you're going to go 1,000 miles. That ain't easy. The region here is poor. This is the other thing we've got to remember. Palestine is poor. It has almost always been poor. It's a backwater. It's been completely destroyed by 100 years of warfare. Jerusalem is gone. Uh, many of the cities of the region have been destroyed by the Assyrians and Babylonia. So if you go back, you're going back to rubble. You're going back to dry desert. You're going back to places where the only people that they left were serfs who were uneducated, low-class citizens who have no education, they have no technical training, they have no um, advanced understanding of metallurgy, they have no understanding of good agriculture. They're literally just barely making it by being peasants living in caves. How many of you want to go back? <laughs> okay. Well, 50,000 Jews do go back. So now we have a situation where approximately 50,000 Jews over many years, okay, in waves, decide to return to, to their homeland. This is a watershed moment. 
This is a watershed moment because it worked. It actually worked in the sense of what God was trying to accomplish. After 538, this region is largely monotheistic now. The Jews who decide to go back are the Orthodox Jews. The Jews who believe in Jehovah as God Almighty, the one true God. Baal worship almost disappears from Judah. Asherah worship disappears. Um, worship of all the pagan nature deities disappear. It worked. The problem was, it was never the glorious world again that it was before. The, think of the kingdom of Solomon. Solomon is referred to in the Old Testament as one of the richest men who ever lived. Now think about that for a minute. Richer than J. Paul Getty, richer than Rockefeller, richer than, um, you, know, uh, you know, who's the Microsoft guy? Bill Gates, richer than Elon Musk, literally had the ability to buy and sell anything he wanted. And he had a great kingdom. Solomon means man of peace. Shalom, man, <laughs> essentially. Man of peace. They didn't have war. They had a standing army. They had a great economy. Everyone was educated. There's a huge amount of writing that's been uncovered from the you know, uh, t 10th, 9th, and 8th centuries BC of this whole region. Why? Because when you're peaceful and prosperous, you become educated. And people can learn to read and write. And there's a lot of very good writing. Okay, well, that is all way in the past. By 538, this is a region that has been smashed to pieces. No one can read and write. Everyone is dirt poor, and there's no security. And this is the other thing that's really important. The Persians let the Jews go home, but guess what? There was a whole lot of other people around here who hated them. Okay, they didn't have an army anymore to protect them. If the and, and this is another really important thing. We had this kingdom called Edom down here in the south. As you remember, these are the offspring of Esau from Genesis, an enemy of the Jewish people. They made a lot of problems for the Jews when they came back because they were jealous, they were hateful, and they didn't want them to succeed. The Edomites themselves, this is also important for our text today, they lived in this land beyond the Dead Sea uh, in this territory called Edom, but guess what? After the, first of all, the Babylonians came and smashed them too. So they were, they were essentially a ruined people. Many of them were allowed to stay. These people called the Nabataean Arabs were nomads from Arabia. Remember this, imagine your geography. Saudi Arabia is this whole part of the wall here, okay? Saudi Arabia is filled with Arabians who are nomadic people who don't really build and live in giant cities. They, they tend to be herders of agriculture, of, of, of uh, livestock. <coughs> They will essentially just move around, come into a region, let the cities fall into decay because they don't really want to live in the city. So the cities would fall into ruin, but then they would overgraze the arable land that was there and ruin it. Remember, if you're a farmer or a livestock uh, person, you know you can't overgraze a region or else it kills all the, the plant life. And then only weeds grow. And then you got to move on. So in fact, the Edomites are resettled south of Jude, uh, what's now called Judea. And they changed their name to Edomia. This is the region in which Herod the Great is born. He is an Edomite. But it's not here anymore. They had to resettle. So this is really important that the Edomites have now had the same kind of ruin that the Judeans have had. Okay. We have set the stage for today. One last thing I want to talk about before we read the text. And that is the chronology of these people who are coming back. Okay. 50,000 people in waves start to come back. Well, the first thing that they want to do, the Orthodox Jews, well, the very first thing they want to do is rebuild what? The temple. They want to rebuild the temple. So this is super important. Remember, under the Levitical priesthood, the Mosaic law said, I expect you, God, I expect you to build a temple for me. A temple that Solomon built was the place where I, Yahweh, will dwell and commune with you as a people. So I will, I will rest in the Holy of Holies in the temple of Jerusalem, and my footstool will be the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So you remember the Indiana Jones movie, when they pick the Ark of the Covenant up, and it's got those two cherubs on the top, and a lid, that is the footstool of God. That is the footstool of God. 
And God said, my physical presence will manifest itself above the footstool of God in the Holy of Holies in the temple. And the temple is where the sacrifices happen. It's where um, atonement takes place. It's where the altar is, where you sacrifice uh, for burnt offerings and peace offerings and um, atonement offerings and all of that. That was the central place of worship for the Jewish people. Guess what? It was smashed to pieces in 586. Very first thing that the Orthodox Jews want to do is go back and fix that. Guys, we got to go back and we got to rebuild the temple because God expects us to do that. And that's where his presence will be. So a group of people go back and start to build the temple in Jerusalem. Well, guess what happens? <laughs> this ain't the city of old. This ain't the city of old. Imagine the, the ruins of an earthquake, uh, maybe in the third world that you've seen on TV. Um, where buildings are just smashed to pieces and there's, there's looting and chaos and poverty. Imagine you go to a place like that. Now you want to build a temple that you want to be revered and protected and be great again. It was super hard. And in fact, it stops after a few years because the neighbors are ticked about it. They don't want them to build their temple. It starts again. And in 515, the second temple is finished. The second temple was a shadow of its former self. This is really important. The great temple of Solomon. There were still people in 515 who were young enough back here, they remember their first temple as being the great palace it was. The old, the old people are looking at this temple in 515 and they're crying. They're crying, it's a shack. It's basically a rubble building. That's this tiny little place that we're supposed to think that we've now received the covenant promises of God. This is really important, folks. This is really important. So, a yep, go ahead. The ones that seen the first temple, they cried when they seen the second temple. That's exactly it. They cried. <coughs> the old men cried because they knew it was a shadow of its former self. So real quick, a series of people come back from, um, from Persia, Babylon, Persia, to come back to fix things. What are the issues that are happening? Even in 515 now, you have all this energy, like we're gonna rebuild and it's gonna be great again and we're gonna have a king on the throne and we're gonna have an army and we're gonna have prosperity and we're gonna have peace. Well, a hundred years goes by and guess what? <laughs> guess what? It's a crap hole. It's a crap hole. A hundred years of promises that don't seem to be fulfilled. There is sin, okay? There's sin. Idolatry starts, starts up again, okay? There's apathy. People are saying, where is this great society we were promised? I gave up everything to come back from Persia, rebuild, and now my kids are dying. People are fighting us in warfare, but the sin is really bad. The priesthood becomes corrupted. The priesthood starts to get just as apathetic as the people. The sacrifices are not being followed properly. The law is not being followed properly. People are marrying Gentiles. And again, I know that sounds weird, but God made it very clear. We want you to stay pure as a people and marry other Jews. Well, when you marry a Gentile and they have very different beliefs than you, in this case, they believe in, in other gods, you kind of just start to believe in it because you're married to that person. Worse than that, they would marry Jews um, primarily divorce was a male thing, so a male would marry a Jewess, probably in Persia, move back to um, Judea, divorce his wife, kick her to the curb, and marry some hot Gentile young hottie who had all these pagan practices. Well, guess what? God wasn't very happy about that either. What you see over the next few years is a return of some very important prophets that we have books of the Old Testament written who come back to try and fix things. Ezra comes back. Nehemiah comes back. He comes back to rebuild the wall. He goes back to Persia. Now all this time, these people are saying, you need, to, you need to fix your ways. You need to get your act together. The reason why you're suffering is because you are not being faithful to God. Even though things seem to suck, it's a cause and effect thing. They suck because you are not being faithful. Not God is trying to punish you, okay? <clears throat> um, so in that moment, in that moment of that context, of all of that stuff happening, let's turn to Malachi chapter 1 in your Bible. We think Malachi, the book means my messenger. The name means my messenger. It could be a title. It could be a name. Um, not much is known about this person. 
except that he seems to speak out about the exact same things that Ezra and Nehemiah are speaking out about. He talks about a governor being in charge of Judea. All of that tends to think that it was written here in kind of the last half of the fifth century. So we think Nehemiah comes back, he writes, he either writes uh, Nehemiah or Ezra writes it about him. And he goes back to Persia. Sometime between 433 and 424, when Nehemiah is away, we think Malachi was written in that gap. Um, and then when Nehemiah comes back, things kind of get a little bit better for a while. That's the setup. That's the setup. So now let's read, with that being said, Malachi chapter 1. And the great thing about Malachi, it's short and sweet, but right to the point. So today we're just going to read chapter 1, which is what, 14 verses? Who would like to read that for me? Too bad Angela's not here, right? <laughs> I, I can read it. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have I loved you? How have you loved us? It is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord, yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country, and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests, you despise my name. But you say, How have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, How have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show your favor? Says the Lord of hosts. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you? Says the Lord of hosts. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors, that that you might not kindle the fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations, and in every place incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted, and its fruit, that is, its food, may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been taken by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. Awesome. Short and sweet. A lot in there. Who wrote this passage? Yeah, I uh, I do that thing where you highlight what God's saying. Why is this wrong? Why is what? Why is this wrong? Wrong? Yeah. Well, because God's saying all of it. Is that what you're saying? Ah, there you go, Gold Star. You wrote it all. <laughs> um, who wrote it? What kind of person wrote this? How? And give me your evidence. Sounds very passionate. Passionate. They they tend to make the best prophets, don't they? Seems to be involved in what's going on. I mean, it's mm -hmm. he's a, ah, he's a player in the game. Oh so yeah, life. Yes, direct. I'm mean, yeah, player. And he, he knows what should be, and yet sees the exact opposite. He's not afraid to say anything. Truth sees problems. Yep. I would uh, yeah. say he knows and understands God. Yep. I mean, he literally understands how God feels about. Oh, that's good. Feels. What I find interesting in, in verse one under my notes, it says, my, my version says the oracle, but that oracle word can be changed to burden. So you think about that. That is exactly what it means in Hebrew. Burden, oracle means burden. Burden of the word of God. Yeah. That's yep. Heavy. So what is an oracle? Who can describe what an oracle is for me? Just general dictionary term. 
Do you know what that is? Predicts the future. Predicts the future. And what were you going to say? It's prophesied. The, the voice of the gods. You've all God. put it all together. You're exactly all right. Predicts the future, gives gives truth and um, uh, you know moral direction, but it, it's through a human coming from God. That is exactly the answer of an oracle. The burden is on who? The oracler. The oracler. And to the people being oracled. I've often thought I, I would not want to be a, a prophet of God because he was not easy on his prophets. He wasn't. He wasn't. You know, you're laying there, you know, burning your food with dung. But uh, <clears throat> that's a different thing. Um, who is his audience? The, the Orthodox Jews. Okay. Or Those 50,000 that showed up. <laughs> I guess it wasn't after they came back. Say it. Yeah, remnant in Judea. The word Jew comes from Judea. That's, they weren't called Jews until after the exile. That's important. They were Israelites. Um, <clears throat> Kind of sounds specifically like he's talking to the priests. Ah, that is exactly that is one priest. They are one. Yep. Yeah, because the priest was the one that did all the. Um, they were the one that did the yep. sacrifices, weren't they? Of religious uh, uh, cult. I, I'm going to say cult, and and again. Please understand when I say cult, it means it in a religious context of the people who are in charge of the rituals and beliefs and practices, running the beliefs and practices of the group of people. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, set, you know. It, basically, that they were looked at as God's representatives. This is exactly it. Yeah. They were the ones supposed to be you know, showing. How so, high do we <laughs> hold the Representatives of God's word, same as everyone else. Higher. This is the thing. And like Jesus, he reserves his harshest criticism for these people because they are the people who are held above and accountable. Who else is an audience here? I think he's also talking to the people because he says, you know, the person um, who you know promised an animal, but then instead keeps the male animal for themselves. So this is the people. This is the Jewish people. This is the remnant. The people who are just living their lives day to day. It's not just the priests. It is the priests. It's also the people. Because if the people weren't bringing lame yep. stuff, then the priests wouldn't have to say, "What are you doing bringing yep. lame?" We're know? all culpable. Right. It's easy to say, oh, he's in charge. It was all his fault. Well, kind of. Guess who else's fault it was? You know. And Ken said it. What is for us? my blind sheep. Yep. How so, Ken? I just give what's left, you know. Just don't give him the good stuff. I mean, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not giving sacrifices, so to speak, on an altar to God, but I'm certainly very good at giving him just a little bit left over here and there. I think that's why, like, even in the New Testament, Paul tells them, like, that God loves a cheerful giver. Because God doesn't want our leftovers, he doesn't want our scraps. He wants, just like in the Old Testament, he wanted the best because he gave us all of it. So why are we giving him just, like, the leftovers? Because he gives the best back to us. Oh my gosh, that is so that, that's so good. The part about the table, <laughs> the table alone is defiled. Um, what I what I was hearing through that whole passage was he just gives so freely to us, nonstop, never ending. Yep. And all of this because he wants so much more for us. Not this isn't about what he wants from us. Yes, there's things that we have to sacrifice, but we're the beneficiary. We're the ones that benefit from that. He doesn't necessarily want our stuff. He wants our heart. That's what he wants. He wants us to continue <clears throat> trusting him. I think this is one of the wise. And him, regardless of what, what there, there is a heart problem, folks, in Malachi 1 that you are seeing here that will start to really become a huge issue in the first century. 
You see the origins, the seeds of that problem. Now in Malachi, 400 years earlier of Jesus, you start to see this issue where the people are starting to become dis disenchanted. They're starting to lose hope. They're starting to see the hardship around them, and it's a cyclical problem. They, start, they see hardship, so they lose faith. But their loss of faith also enrages God and, and spurs his wrath, and then things get worse for them. And then they stop trusting God, and it's kind of an endless cycle. What you see here is the seeds of that apathy, where the priests are really only doing this as a show. It's an external thing. It's, I'm going to show on the outside some veneer of worshiping and following God, but on the inside, they are really bad. They're corrupt. Well, another thing that they do, if you remember, when Jesus cleared out the temple, they were exchanging. Yeah. So in order to, maybe they were presenting these uh, yep. blind and lame animals, but then they would exchange it for you know, a better one you know, for more money or whatever. So yep. that was a way for them to maybe control, you know, like show face, say, yeah, we're trying to ensure that the only yep. best are sacrificed. And really it wasn't. It's just the same thing. It's just for sure. Well, so part of the sacrifices, yep. they really did all that wasn't burnt. They redistributed it to the poor and the needy. Yes, this is really good. So, I mean, they were kind of like the butchers, but they were giving, instead of giving away good cats, they were giving away the garbage to the people. Thank you, sir. This is so important. This is so important. And again, they, it's, it's the priests and the people taking you know, I, I think it's really important that history recognizes the Jews as the first group who really cared about social justice. Say it again. This is my I know. I said no, social justice. No, you use word social I know. Justice. <laughs> I know it's weird. If you think about the Jewish faith is really strong about you have to help the poor. It's through the entire Old Testament. Folks, this is not a 21st century liberal politics thing. 3,000 years ago, God was telling people, you got to take care of the disenfranchised. You got to take care of the widows. You got to take care of the divorced, the orphans, the poor who can't eat. You got to take care of their debt. You can't in perpetuity sell your land to anybody. Why? Because three rich people will own everything eventually. You can't do that. You can't do that. Since the beginning of time, Judaism has been about social justice. What's happening here? Exactly what Kevin is saying. They're starting to be like, I don't care about the poor. It's, it's them or me. That's their attitude. Well, if there's only so many crops, I'm going to get them first. And it, you know, it's either I'm going to die or they are. Well, what happens? It's a cycle then. Then you start to always marginalize the poor. And they're always oppressed. Things always get worse. I like how God is reminding them like earlier... In the passage, he talks about, like, would you bring some, you know, the same stuff to your governor as you bring to me? And at the very end, he says, I am a great king, and I am feared by all the nations. So he's, like, reminding them, like, you know, yeah, you see this tangible governor, and you're afraid of him, but I am a great king. Like, this is just some guy, but I am to be feared. How does that convict you about today? I think it's easy for us to not, like... You know, it's spiritual. Like, we don't see God, like, physically. So it's hard for us to, like, we do need to be reminded. Like, it's good that God reminds us that, like, he is a great king. Because we're reminded of all the time. Mm -hmm. Moment by moment. Like, live consciously yep. that God is here right now in the very presence. And a lot of times we forget it because we allow the, the worries and cares and the stresses of life to come. And then we focus on that instead. Like, how are we going to get out of this? Oh, yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. The government stepped in and taken over the what the originally what the tithing was because the church would donate out and take care of the poor and needy. And now government has stepped in and tried to do it, but not for to give really to the poor and needy, but to control the poor and needy. Right. Remember that that happened though too. Remember in the yep. Remember in the Old Testament, the law is clear. It is it is the priesthood has an obligation. To, to help the poor. The, 
the priesthood was only doing a small part because they could only do a small part. There was only so many animals brought to the actual physical temple that were sacrificed or donated that could be then given to the poor, or money given to the poor. Who did God expect in the Old Testament to take care of the poor? Every human being. If you owned land, you were supposed to let the poor graze on your land and come and pick up the grain that fell. If you were a landowner, you were expected to allow peasants to come and use the land periodically. If you were a landowner and you had um, <clears throat> sold your land because of debts, after the year of Jubilee, you were expected to get your land back. The person who bought your land had to give it back. Every single person was called upon to help the poor in the Old Testament. The problem with expecting one group to do all of this is that it's not going to be sustainable. It can't be sustainable. Okay. What else? What else? The governor thing is a good one, and that sparked a little conversation with, with the elders this week. Um, how does that convict you about your current, what I would say, walk with God or your engagement uh, with God? Or maybe it doesn't. I don't know. <clears throat> Sometimes we can like, you know, lose sight when we're praying. Mm -hmm. Like we'll be praying about like God, I really need this, and I, you yeah. know, I'm going through this struggle, and it's yeah. more me focused. And I think that, you know, we can definitely diminish yeah. um, who God is. Like yeah. there is danger of like treating Him like a vending machine, I guess. And, yeah, and also uh, trying to sit ourselves on the throne. Yeah, you know, trying to control everything. I think part of it, and this is way different than maybe what we've been talking about, mm -hmm. but we lose track of our blessings. I mean, these people were just giving the opportunity to go home. God, you know, maybe they don't have their great temple now. Maybe everything's not exactly what they had envisioned in their head, but God gave them another chance, and they're still not satisfied. They're still mad. Yep. Yeah, I mean, they survived the conquering yep. of Jerusalem, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of people died. Like, if you read, like, Jeremiah, oh, my goodness. Like, they're eating their babies. I mean, like, they're yeah. all starving to death. And, like, yeah, so they even survived that. Yeah. They survived, like, all the, you know, the fiery furnace and yeah. all that stuff. Like, God took care of them, but now they're mad because... <laughs> And they're still trying to chintz God or treat not treat him with the respect he deserves. And even when they get, you know, called on it, they just aren't getting it. It's so hard to do this. It's easier said than done. It's really easy for us to sit in here and go, oh, we need to be less bitter. We need to be less pessimistic. We need to be thankful for what we have. Go out to the world. And then what do we do? We go out into the world and we're like, mm, I wish I had a Mercedes. <laughs> well, I'm wondering if this is a direct result of, you know, that they are remembering what the temple was before yeah. so maybe they're just not as motivated because it's like it's not as good as it was before so I'm just I'm going to be half-hearted about it I think that's exactly it but I think we do it today I think the reason we have this is because I mean it's always relevant we still do that today keep perspective the good old days yeah it's really easy to look at that timeline and go if I'm if I'm a Jew back then sitting in Babylon going yeah God took it all away from us. God destroyed the temple. God allowed all these things to happen. And I forget that these are choices that I made that brought me to this point. And then I go away and I have to live over there for a while. And then I come back and I complain about all the great stuff that he's given back to me. And go, you know, yeah, I, it's just... This is, this is Plato, this whole thing. Plato understood how society works. He says, society starts with a small group of people, the aristocracy, who are benevolent, who should be benevolent and are morally pure and have what he called hearts of, and souls of gold, right? But as society progresses and it gets richer and they start to become more wealthy, a degradation of society inevitably happens in which, in his words, you know, democracy is the, the second to last step before tyranny. But it's true. Um, and again, not a political thing. Not a political thing, but listen to me. said that twice. As society gets more wealthy, what happens? People get more comfortable. Self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. Say it again. Selfish. Selfish. 
they get I, more business. selfish. I'm here because of what I have done and what I have built. This is mine. We chose a king to yeah. give us all this. And yeah, what happens in the end? Does anyone know what Plato's last step is? It's tyranny. Yeah. It's tyranny. Why? Because so many people are so wealthy and so bitter because they don't have even more wealth that chaos ensues in society and anarchy breaks out. And all of these rich people continue to fight to get more wealth and to fight others to take their wealth away from them until a tyrant arises. And the problem is when a tyrant arises, by the time you realize they're a tyrant, you can't get rid of them anymore. You can't get rid of them anymore. This is the natural degradation of society. You all in this room are richer than 99.9% .9 of all of the human beings, homo sapiens, who have ever walked the earth before you. Think about that for a minute. Think about that for and a minute. And we're not satisfied. How bitter are we? How bitter are we? How depressed are we? Yeah, how anxious and how... How angry are we that someone else has something we don't? I think we can feel the oppression and what is the final final step here that a Christian should keep their eye on will you ever be satisfied on this earth content. how can you achieve contentment well I think I think that's just a matter of changing your perspective yeah because where we are we should be content because yeah. of what God has done for us and I think no matter where we are in life God's still sovereign on the mountaintop and in the valley so if we're in the valley, God is still God, and mm -hmm. we should be content that God is still God. I think when when you look through history, I think um, the lessons learned in hardship bring people back to God. You almost have to feel yeah. sorry for the people that are complacent and that haven't had hardship, because those are the ones that are the furthest from God, usually. Exactly. You see how well the church thrived under persecution, mm -hmm. and how widespread it became. So are we praying for persecution? Should. Well, we, we pretty should much already are there. But we yeah. shouldn't be praying that, oh, God, take this hardship away from me. We should be, God, pray, what should I learn from this? Yeah. <laughs> you read Hebrews 12, right? We were there last week. Pray for hardship, right? Um, pray for the strength to go through hardship. Yeah. Not why, not pray for why me and take this away. It's what, what can I learn from this? Where, where can I serve? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm praying that for you, Jim. <laughs> oh, not me. No, no. <laughs> but sadly, that's what it is, right? So. That only God can fill. So, so. Say, say that again, Lorna. We have a need for God that only God can fill. I'm going to leave us with that. Our real needs, Lorna said it perfectly, can only be filled. By God that you cannot escape it no matter how much money you have no matter how much stuff you can acquire no matter how much power you can have or be given it will never be enough power and money and wealth are heroin they are yes narcotics have a useful function too much of it will kill you. Wealth and, and money help you to be able to buy stuff, right? It's the physical currency that God has allowed to happen on this planet. But guess what? You let that get out of control and let that be the, the God of your life. You are going to be miserable. Only God can fill this and he is trying to set up Eden. We're going to keep coming back to this idea of Eden. Eden is the goal. Eden is the goal where God is in charge and his righteousness and joy supplants your bitterness and your anxiety and your worry. How many of us are going to die physically? Physically. I Once. Think, I think we're right up on about that. I think a lot of us might, might not die. Might, might be. Every generation has thought it's coming. It might be. It might be. going to get that new body. How's that going to feel? But All that's the, the end. That's the answer. Yeah. you got to go through some pain to get that. Paradise. If you believe. You're ready. Yeah. I need some accountability in my life. Are you carrying your cross today? Are you bearing your cross today? 
Are you denying yourself? Hmm? That's it's really hard to, to do that when you do have all that money. It's Father's Day, man. Just stay off. Stay off. Be the hero. Enjoy that boat. All right, thank you for joining us. We'll see you next week.